Well, good evening. Um, I think I know most of y'all, but um, as, as Amanda said, my name is Lindsay Monica Vosigam, and uh, you can use that as a tongue twister. Um, I did actually have, I teach art, my full-time job now is teaching art and being a curriculum director, and so I had a first grader the other day turn around and say, is your whole name Mrs. Monica Vosigam? And I said, yes, it is, and I'm very impressed. Because um, you know, usually first graders don't get it. Usually the fifth graders would pull it out to be impressive. But I am so excited to get to teach. This is one of my favorite, favorite things um, to get to do is to get to teach and to get to teach women. Um, for one thing, y'all sit still and listen. I don't have to tell anybody to be still. Um, but for another, it's just it's so it's just so good to be able to be in the Word together and to. Um, just see what God's word says to us. And that's, that's just such one of, one of my favorite things to be able to do. So one of my other favorite things to do as we are going into the book of Nahum is traveling. My husband and I love to take big trips. We don't, uh, during the school year, we of course don't travel very much, but during the summer, we like to get in the car and we drive. Um, we drive far and wide. Uh, one, one year we drove up to Cape Cod, another a couple years ago we drove out to LA. Um, we like to travel. But one of the things that I have found consistently true is that my very favorite places to travel are actually the places that are um, kind of off the, off the beaten path a little bit. They're not the big touristy spots. They're not the places that everybody says, hey, have you been to this place? Uh, most of the time what I find is that my favorite places that we end up going are the little places, the places that we happen upon, and we're like, wow, that is the best seafood ever, and you would never know it's there. Um, this summer, I had that experience when we were out in, um, we were in California, my husband's aunt lives out there, so we were out there for a couple weeks visiting with her, and so he and I went driving one day, we ended up in Hollywood, um, of all places. And so we're walking around. We're not near the Walk of Fame or any of the fan, any of the touristy side. We're kind of there's another part to it that's a little bit nicer and much more pleasant. But so we're walking down the street, and um, and I see this little alleyway, and I see a little sign on the alleyway that says Rear Bookstore this way. And I mean the alleyway is like this big. It's tiny, and it is Hollywood, so you do have to be careful. And so, but I thought can I go down here? So I was like, Melvin, do you mind if I just peek down here? And he's like, yeah, yeah, go for it. And so, um, and so we start walking down this little alleyway, and it's, I mean, it's, it's like this big across, and the stairs are like this big, and it's dark, and it's concrete, but I'm like, it says there's a bookstore on the other end. I'm going. Um, and so sure enough, like we get down to the end, and then we step out, and there's this beautiful little courtyard, and this adorable little yellow house, and there were geraniums all around it, and the sun was shining, and it was amazing. And then I went inside, and it was a rare bookstore that has every kind of first edition you can imagine. I mean, it was amazing. They've had, I mean, they had more new, they had newer stuff like Harry, like Harry Potter and stuff like that. They also had first edition Jane Austen and Charles Dickens. They had one book that, so I'm geeking out right now. As you can tell, I, this is what I get excited about. One actually had an inscription from Queen Victoria. And what made it better was that the guy who owned it was a character. I mean, so actually I found out later, you can actually like Google this place and it's like, the stars go to shop there. I didn't know this, but he, uh, he was a mess. Um, 
and told me everything that was wrong with Mississippi when he found out when I was from Mississippi. Um, but I was like, you know, whatever. Um, it was still a really cool bookshop. But I say all of that because as we come to the book of Nahum, I hope that's a little bit of your experience here. Because this looks a little scary on the front end. This is not a part of the Bible we spend a lot of time in. Um, I think last week we were talking in our small group, and honestly, I think the only times I've read Nahum are a whiz-by when I have read it during, um, during a read through the Bible. And it's been a while since I've done a full-out read through the Bible. And so, but, but as I've studied Nahum, there's just so much here. It's a really, really rich and beautiful and encouraging book um, if we're willing to stop and look and take a few little risks to go into it. And so I hope that that, that that will be your experience as you come into this. So let's step into the book of Nahum a little bit. So I want to take a moment to transition from Jonah. So last week we left off with Jonah and he was, um, and we left off with a question. Interestingly enough, two books in the Bible end with a question. Nahum and Jonah. We'll talk a little more with that actually next week. Um, but so Jonah ended off with this question that showed God's compassion for the Ninevites, the uh, main city of Assyria. He said, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and many cattle. So where we left off with that question, we now fast forward about 100 years. So a hundred years afterwards. Um, and so we see that that repentance that we saw in Jonah must have been short-lived because a couple of really big things happened during those hundred years that actually give a lot of um, color to the book of Nahum. So the first thing is that Assyria, so um, about, um, so Jonah was written 750-ish. Um, there's some debate on that. But about 30 years after that, Assyria actually destroyed Israel or the northern kingdom. You can read about that in 2 Kings 17. Um, and it was bad. Like, it was really bad. You can, you can read about it. And then just about 20 years after that, in 701 BC, Assyria actually was oppressing Judah and forcing King Hezekiah to pay tribute to, them, to him, and he actually attempted to take Jerusalem. It's a really dramatic story. Um, and actually, with, I'm going to read a little piece from it to give us a flavor of who the Assyrians were. And so this was, again, this is about 40 years after Jonah is when we see this. And so I'm going to hop over to 2 Kings for just a second. Um, so this is where Assyria is actually attempting to take Judah, because you can imagine this massive empire, and they've taken over everything except for Judah. Like Judah is just underneath the northern kingdom. This is not big. And so um, the Assyrians are coming to attack, and this is actually what they say. They surround the city of Jerusalem, and their uh, commander is sent to send a message to the king Hezekiah. And he insists on speaking in Hebrew, the language that everybody's going to understand. And so I'm actually going to pick up. So this is 2 Kings 18. Um, verse 26 is where I'm going to pick up. It kind of picks up in the middle of the story, but I want you to hear how the Assyrians talk so we can, we can humanize them just a little so we kind of know them a little bit. So then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebna, and Joah said to Rabshakeh, Speak now to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. We do, and do not speak to us in Judean or Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. 
But the commander, Rabshakeh, said to them, Has my master sent me only to your master to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall, doomed to eat their own dung and drink their own urine with you? Then, Rabsh- then Rabshakeh, that's the commander of Assyria, stood up and cried in a loud voice in Judean, in Hebrew, saying, Hear ye the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah, the, Judean, the king of Judah, deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you from my hand, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord. And he uses the special name for the Lord too, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and in the city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me, and come out to me, and each will eat of his vine and his own fig tree, and drink of each waters of his own cistern, until I come and take away the land, until I take you away to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. He's actually parodying some of the, the promises that God made to Israel through Joshua. So it kind of shows how much the Assyrians actually knew of, of Israel and of their God. And so this guy goes on to say, but do not listen to Hezekiah as he misleads you, saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nation delivered his hand from his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sherpavium, Hena, and Eva? Have they delivered Samaria from my hand? That's the northern kingdom. Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their land from my hand? And that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand. And so we see they know a lot. And this is what they said to the Israel or to the to Judah as they're getting ready to attack them. Again, that the the uh, repentance of Nineveh was pretty short lived. Um, and so. From that point that I just read you, we're actually now going to fast forward about 20 more years. And so this is where Assyria is now an established powerhouse in the world. They, there are some cracks beginning to show in their, in their empire. Um, but at the same time, we see that Judah is actually not faring well either. And if you were able to do any of the homework, you saw that King Manasseh is now king over Judah. And King Manasseh, like the way it describes what King Manasseh did is really bad. Um, so Judah is not doing well. In fact, when you, if you were able to do that homework, what you saw is that Judah is actually following Manasseh in rejecting all the special blessings that God had given them, in giving them the temple and a special place to worship. They have now set up idols there and are doing all kinds of abominable things there. These are the people of God. Um, the, they're in the promised land, but they're doing more evil than the people that God had used them to kick out, you know, five, 300, 400 years before that. And so you can imagine, as you imagine that you've got Assyria over here, this proud and deceitful people, you've got most of the people of Judah following Manasseh and really acting about the same way. What would it have been like to be a part of the faithful remnant of God's people? Because God said there, was always be a, there would always be a group of faithful people who would follow him. So what's it, what is it like for those people? And that's who Nahum is writing to. That, that little group of people who are faithful, um, who are faithful to Yahweh. So let's go into the book of Nahum. We're going to walk our way through some pieces of this. So Nahum 1.1. Um, I would say before I even go any further, if you have access to one of the print Bibles, I would encourage you to pull it out. I'll give you the page number because I can never find Nahum. Um, it's 782. 
in this one, just because we're going to see something that sometimes it helps to actually see in a, in a printed Bible. If you have a, if you can pull it up on your phone, that's fine too. Um, and I'll pull my ESV. I tend to read from the New American Standard, which is why it sounds weird when you look at yours and you hear mine. Um, but so Nahum 1.1, the oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. So here we see just a couple pieces that, that bring us in to the book of Nahum. First off, we really don't know much about him. I mean, nobody really knows where Elk, what an Elkishite is. But what we do know is that his name actually means comfort, which I find really fascinating. And I think you're going to see, we're going to see more of that as we go through. Um, so we're in a book of, of so much judgment where we find comfort. Other thing we see here is that we actually see, um, we see a little bit of the, um, we see that this is an oracle. And, and you'll see, if, you're, if you've got a print Bible, you'll see at the bottom, it's just a burden. Most of the time, this, this kind of word is used for anything that is uh, a punishment, where he's calling out punishment on people. So this is a burden. This is something heavy to carry. And so that kind of gives us a little flavor, too, that this is something that is heavy, um, that this is, there's not joy taken in giving, in giving a, a, message of, a message of punishment. So let's actually read Nahum 1, 2 through 8. And I'll, since we've got our, our, our Bible thought, I'll switch over to my ESV. So Nahum 1, 2 through 8. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blooms of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. So as we get into reading this, we're going to what we're going to do is we're going to walk our way through what this tells us about who the Lord is, because you'll notice in here, even though we know that this is an oracle against Nineveh, the great city of Assyria, we don't see Nineveh yet. We just see the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, just over and over throughout here. Um, and so I actually want to actually start with that, where it just says. The Lord. And if you're looking in your ESV, you can see it's almost like it's lined up. It's just boom, 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 um, going straight down. You'll also notice it's all caps. I think it's always good for us to remember that when we see the all caps, we know that that is Yahweh. That is the special name that God gave to Moses back with the burning bush when, when Moses said, who am I going to tell your people who I am? And he says, I am. I am that I am. That's Yahweh. That is the special name. And that name right there means that God keeps his promises. He is a God who makes promises and keeps promises. So every time we hear that, we want to think the God who makes and keeps promises. Like that's what we can kind of keep coming back to. And you see that that, 
when we start this off, we're not going to look, we're not looking at Assyria, this massive behemoth. We're looking at the Lord. And in fact, throughout this whole book, um, throughout the whole chapter of one, we, uh, chapter one, we actually see the Lord show up 10 times in the first chapter. Nineveh only shows up three times in the whole book. And it's about Nineveh. <laughs> actually, four times if you count the first one. And so right off the bat, we're, we're meant to be shown that we need to start looking at the Lord, not at the enemies. We don't start, we don't start with the enemies, we start with the Lord. Because um, up against Yahweh, Nineveh is nothing. Um, even though at this time period, like, to think that, that Assyria would fall is completely unthinkable. Like it just wouldn't happen. Um, but that's exactly what this is talking about. So let's keep going. So the first big thing then it says to us is that the Lord is jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. So we see the word avenging show up three times. Three times? Might have counted wrong. Three times, yeah. So three times we see that show up. That can make us squirm a little bit. Makes us a little bit uncomfortable. But I think one thing we want to keep in mind as we look at this, we do not need to apologize for who God is. This is how He He reveals Himself to us, and we don't have to be we don't have to apologize for that. Um, he is who He is. Um, as we saw in Jonah, we saw that you know ultimately He gets to set the agenda, not us. And so and so we just have to trust Him and kind of walk into this. Um, and I think the thing that, that, that makes us uncomfortable, even as we look at this, is that we see these things and we see the harm that these things do in sinful people. Jealousy and vengeance in sinful people creates all kinds of havoc and harm. Um, the, and, and it's good to remember that the devil distorts. And so he takes two things that are very good and very true about the Lord and distorts them in very, very bad ways. God is not vindictive. He is not capricious. He is not petty. Um, and so if we look at these two words, we kind of bring them down to their, to their core, both jealousy and vengeance, there is actually a relational element to both of them. That's not the only thing that we could say about them, but that's, that's where we'll go today, is that, so jealousy in its essence is a vigilant commitment to maintain a relationship. It is an intensity of love and a determination to maintain that commitment. It is, that is the heart of true jealousy, not the stuff, not the, the messed up ones version that we, we often show. Um, vengeance, and if you think about the, how we usually use the word vengeance, for whatever reason, this always makes me think of Princess Bride um, with uh, Inigo Montoya, you killed my father, prepare to die. Um, so yeah, y'all have officially found out that I am a nerd. Um, I love first edition books, and I can quote Princess Bride. Um, but it's all right, I own it. Um, but, but that's kind of how we use that word vengeance, is that we use it in the sense of, I will avenge my father. I will um, take vengeance. Um, if we look over in Psalm 94, we'll actually see how, what the Lord is taking vengeance on. And I'm actually going to read a piece of this. Um, it's pretty shocking news, isn't it? Um, so Psalm 94, 1 through 7, it says, O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render recompense to the proud. How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour forth words, they speak arrogantly, and who do, all who do wickedness vaunt themselves. 
They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the orphans. They have said the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. That's what he's taking vengeance against. And so we see there that ultimately that vengeance is that he is, he is going after those who would set themselves up as God. He's going after those who are proud. He's righting wrongs, especially for the defenseless. That's a different picture of vengeance than sometimes that we, um, we use, for, that we think of. Okay, so the Lord is jealous and avenging. Next thing it says is that he reserves wrath for his enemy. And all throughout here, when we come to these things, if he has vengeance, we see wrath. It's, we need to keep in mind that the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. It is the same God all the way through. Um, this idea of wrath is, is strong, vengeful anger. It is indignation or retribution for an offense. Romans 1.18 actually talks about this. He says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So it's interesting if you do a word study how much the word wrath shows up in the New Testament. It's a lot. Um, but there's more on that, and we'll see that in just a second. But we see in the Romans passage that gives light to our Nahum passage is that God's wrath is against any ungodliness and righteousness, which means he is against anything that distorts, that oppresses, that brings death uh, to his people or his creation. He is just not okay with that, and he's not going to stand by and let it happen. Um, but you might be thinking, but I thought we were supposed to turn the other cheek. I thought we weren't supposed to show vengeance. Well, you're right, we're not. Romans 12, 19 says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. I will repay. It is mine to avenge. I will repay, said the Lord. So we're sinful. God is not. He is completely holy and righteous. He does not repay evil for evil. He eradicates the evil. Um, so I was thinking about this, and again, being a teacher, um, is that when you watch, like, so the other day I was watching a class, and um, a little boy starts crying, so I go over to investigate what's going on, and he, he said, that kid punched me. I was like, okay. So I asked the other kid, so, and well, at which point the other kid said, no, I didn't, I hit him on the neck. <laughs> like, I think we're splitting hairs here, just a little bit. Um, but so, and so it turns out that the first kid was saying something ugly about the other kid. And so, like, there we see him taking, taking things into his own hand. And what happened? The evil multiplied. It didn't get rid of it. It just made it more. Um, another example that you can think of, and again, this is another classroom example. So I say to a group of kids, for whatever reason, this is largely second and third grade. It's kind of where, where I see this the most. I go in and I say, okay, boys and girls, please don't open your watercolors. And of course, what does one kid do? Open the watercolors. And then what do half of the other class say to that kid who opened his watercolors? Participation, yes. You opened your watercolors. You're not supposed to do that. Miss Monica, he opened his watercolors. I mean, this is like a second grade teacher, not she knows. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is like they, they want to be the judge. But of course, what is my response then? It's like, boys and girls, what's your job right now? Is to be a student. My job is to be the teacher, and there's only one of me, and, I've got to, I, and the Lord has given me a little more wisdom and experience to know what we need to do right now. Let me do my job, you do yours. That's what God says to us. I am God. 
I am righteous, I am just, I can handle this, I know all things, you only know a little bit, let me do my job. And so God says, I will take vengeance when the time is right in a perfectly holy way. And that actually brings us to our next bit. And so not only is he able to be the one who um, eradicates evil as the righteous judge, it says here in verse three, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And so it, it's, all, it's, it's neat to see this slow to anger and great in power, because you actually see that show up all over the Bible. Like that's like the, the ancient Israel creed right there. Showed up in Jonah, it's gonna show up again later in here. Um, but that right there shows us something really important. He's slow to anger. He is great in power. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He is deliberate and sure when he, when he comes in and he judges. Um, 2 Peter 3.8 actually speaks to this. It says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years are as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. So he will take his time, but when it's time, he is going to do what is necessary. I mean, think about even with the Ninevites, we see that God waited a 100 years between, between, the, um, between Jonah coming to them and then this pronouncement of their downfall. And it's even a little bit after this before, before Nineveh actually completely falls. Um, and we can even see in that Second Kings passage that we see how much knowledge they had of Yahweh. They had enough knowledge to be able to make fun in a very specific way of the people of Israel and of the God of Israel. Um, so they knew, they knew what was going on, and yet God waited. He stayed his hand. Um, it sort of makes me think of some parents say, you know, I don't make threats, I make promises. Um, that God, that's God, but he does this in a fully righteous way. Um, but it's not just that he waits to do it, that he is slow to anger, but that he is also great in power. He has the power to complete his word. If he says something, he has the power to complete it. He is omnipotent or omnipotent. So omni meaning all, potent meaning powerful. He has that power. And these, this, these verses continue to walk us through this a little bit. And as I read these verses, um, think about what, you, what you're seeing, what you're hearing, what you're feeling, just with your physical senses, as it shows us the power of God. And so I'm picking up in verse 3, just at the end of it. In whirlwind and storm in his way. So whirlwind, think like tornado, hurricane, like massive winds. Um, another piece that shows I'm a nerd. I love the Weather Channel and Weather Channel app. It's like I was watching something the other day, watching just all, this, all the hurricane storms come through and the storm surge. And so that's kind of our picture here, the whirlwind. So in the whirlwind and storm in his way, and the clouds are the dust beneath his feet, so that's like as he walks, you know, dust will kind of come up around your feet as you walk. God is so big and so powerful that it's as though when he walks, the clouds are the dust that sort of comes up around his feet. That is how big he is. 
And so then he says, he rebukes the sea and makes it dry. All he has to say, he just has to speak and the sea goes dry. It kind of makes us think of the Red Sea or um, a couple other places where he makes the sea go away. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. So these are beautiful, fer- fertile places that just completely wither. The power of his word. The mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Those things that we assume will always be here, be there, are just completely just shaking and are breaking apart and are falling apart. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence the world, and all of its inhabitants. So there's so much that shows God's power. He, Nahum shows God's power in, as, as he comes as the divine warrior, sort of what happens. This is not literal, but it's meant to give us that impression that God is powerful. Um, and if God can do all of this in the natural world, a world that we can't control and neither could the Assyrians, what can God do to cruel or taking care of prideful people? He can handle it. Um, And so then the question then might be asked, though, but is God justified in his anger and in his indignation? I think we could say safely at this point, yes. But the passage actually gives us more information to show that he is justified in this. If you hop down to verse 9 through 14, there's this back and forth a little bit that's showing us that the punishment of the Assyrians actually fits their crime. And so I'm going to read just a piece of this. In verse 9 it says, Whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up, t- do, will not rise up twice. We see the Assyrians devising against the Lord. And then verse 10, like a tangled thorn, so just a bunch of thorns that you can just light fire to. Um, and like those who are drunken with their drink, they are consumed and stubble completely withered. And so it goes back and forth a little bit of here's what the Assyrians are doing and here's the punishment that matches that. And so God is not capricious. He is not having a bad day and zapping somebody. He, he, make, he matches it to what is needed. Um, and, um, and so let's keep going then from here. So this is where the, the passage changes a little bit. So we've had all of this massive storm. We've had the earthquake. We've had the wind. We've had the water. We've had things dissolving in front of us or withering in front of us. And then we come to verse 7. Verse 7 says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. You can almost feel the quiet in that moment. It's like when you read Psalm 46. It has the same sort of thing. Is that everything is just going completely crazy. It's this awful storm, noise, everything. And then you step inside the refuge. It's quiet. And that's what we see here, is we have this sense of peace. And it says here, the very first thing it says of the Lord, he is good. It's not just using it as a characteristic. He, he embodies goodness. Just as God is love, he is good. He is the definition of good. So what's the upshot of that? We can trust him. We can trust what he does is, is right and for our good. And so then it goes on to say that he is a stronghold and a refuge in the day of trouble. So this is like a fort. This is, uh, uh, this is you can imagine, just a big castle in the midst of the battle fray, everything going on around. And yet inside of him is peace, is quiet, even though the fray is still going on outside. 
And, and, and as you look at this, you see that, like, who are we trusting in this moment? If we take refuge in the Lord, if Israel takes refuge in the Lord, they're not trusting themselves. They're not trusting their own ability, their intelligence, their strength. They're trusting the Lord. They're trusting Yahweh, the God who makes and keeps promises. But in here, we actually also see a little bit of a challenge. Let's look on verse 7 and 8. Uh, I'm going to read 7 again, then I'll read 8 as well. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into the darkness. So we see then, here we have an the introduction of a contrast. We have those who take refuge in the Lord versus those who are his enemies. And we see a complete different, um, what happens is completely different to them. And before we look at this, it's really easy, I think, to look at the Assyrians and say, oh, well, I'm not those people. Because we've heard a little bit about all the ugly stuff that Assyria, the Assyria did. I'm not those people. Well, I don't know that we can quite say that. Because... Think about Judah at this time. Judah was acting as much like Assyria as Assyria was. They were no different even though they were technically the people of God. There is an implicit warning here for anyone who would identify themselves with the people of God. That if we act like the Assyrians, if we are proud and self-reliant, then we will be treated like one. It doesn't mince words here. And the enemy of God is not an ethnic group. It is those who, it is based on where we put our trust. And if our trust is in him, then we are not his enemy. We are, we are, in, we are, his, we are in him. Um, so Hebrews 10, 26 through 31 actually speaks to this. Because he's, he's speaking in this, in this passage I'm about to read, um, the author is speaking to people who claim faith in Christ um, but is warning them. And you'll see how the warning really connects into what, to what um, Nahum is talking about. He says, if we deliberately, this is 10, 26 to 31, Hebrews 10, 26 to 31. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God's anger will come on those who are his enemies. But there is good news. Romans 5, 8 through 11 tells us to flee to Christ as our refuge. So Romans 5, 8 through 11 says, but God demonstrates his own, his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified, that means made right by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? So this is taking refuge in him. We are saved from the wrath of God. For while we were, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled, that means made peace to him, through the death of his son, because Jesus took that full wrath on himself. How much more then, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? And not only this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So either Christ bears God's righteous wrath, or I do. Those are the only two options that we have. We're either, we either take refuge in Christ, or we, we bear the brunt of our own sin. 
Now, I will say that this, we, I, I have taken a person, like uh, looking at this at a, in a personal application, we could look at this at a bigger kind of corporate um, nation way. Um, if they're both true, I just have made a choice here. So just to kind of put that out there. But so again, if Christ bears God's righteous wrath for us, we are in him. That means that we receive all the blessing and benefit that comes through Christ. And so we then see, coming back to Nahum, verse 15, this is good news. Nahum 15 says, Behold, on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feast, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. And so God makes an end of our enemies, both the Assyrians for the Israelites but also we can think he, makes, he will make an end of our sin. He will make an end of anything that destroys or hurts his people. He will do it. And so we see that comfort. And so God's people, those who take refuge in Christ, in God through Christ, will be restored to celebrate. That's what we see in these verses. They are celebrating. They are worshiping the Lord. They are communing with one another. And so to wrap us up, do you remember from the beginning how it said that Nahum meant comfort? That's what the word Nahum meant. Well, this verse, verse 15, if, again, if you were able to do the homework, you were able to see this. And if, I would really encourage you to take a look at that if you didn't get a chance to see. But that, this verse actually gets quoted a couple other places in, in the Bible. One of the other places that this very verse shows up of how beautiful on the feet is the mountain. Uh, or is, is, I'm sorry, I got my words mixed up. I just lost it. On, uh, Behold on the mountain the feet of him, bring, uh, him who brings good news. That verse actually shows up in Isaiah 40. In Isaiah 40, the whole chapter is just amazing. Uh, but it starts with this. This is the beginning of Isaiah 40. It says, comfort, comfort my people. Literally it says, nahum, nahum my people. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, her guilt has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So, let's take refuge in the Lord, and there we will find true comfort. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that we can come before you and we can call you Father. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord, I thank you that you are righteous, that you are just, that you are good, that you will not leave the guilty unpunished, but that in Christ we can find refuge, that we can be rescued from our, the own punishment that we deserve. I pray for each of these women that they would understand your comfort in a new and a deeper way. And Lord, I pray that you would go with them as we go from here. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.